let's begin by reading from the book of Revelation chapter 3 starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Before I stand at the door, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now there's a lot that I could say to you about Laodicea, and uh, we just had a nice hour-long Sunday school class where we talked a lot about Laodicea and the church there. Uh, we did a Wednesday night series that, that broke for the summer uh, after we finished studying this letter. So, so if you want to know more about Laodicea, there's a number of resources that we can offer you, and uh, just want to let you know that because if you... Uh, want to know more, there are other opportunities apart from today's sermon where we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the important concept that we are embracing here as a part of our wilderness wandering toward the promised land. And so keeping that in mind, I would just tell you that there's nothing particularly notable about the church at Laodicea, or even the town of Laodicea. The church there, like the city's water supply, is just sort of blah. They don't have cool, refreshing spring water, and they don't have therapeutic hot springs. They have tepid, cruddy water. <laughs> and it's the kind of water that wouldn't refresh you if you drank it, and it wouldn't make you feel any better if you bathed in it. And so when Jesus says, church, you're like that too, he's saying, so what do you do with that? You spit it out of your mouth. It just isn't good. Um, you know, it's an ironic thing that we fail to mention more often in church, and I think we should talk about it a lot, but one of the biggest problems one of the most important human needs in the world at large is clean drinking water. I mean, that's like a universal problem all over the world and most of us Westerners take it for granted that we have clean drinking water and we don't realize how really fortunate we are 
to have something as simple as clean drinking water. And the church at Laodicea and the people of Laodicea are used to cruddy water. If you've ever traveled to foreign countries, I know Jessica has, you go to some of these third world countries and you'll find people drinking water you can't imagine anybody would drink. It, it's that scary sometimes. I remember in Kazakhstan seeing cars lined up at a broken steam pipe, <laughs> you know, because they heat everything with steam over there. And, and, and this broken steam pipe had a steady leak coming out of it. And people were lining up with their milk jugs and things like that, and their buckets and anything else they could put water in, and each taking a turn at free water. You know, eventually the municipality was going to come along and fix that leak, but for the moment, people could get free water. And the water, well, it was in ancient Soviet-era water lines. Who knows how clean that water was? But if that was normal for you, you might be like Laodicea, used to ordinary mud, icky, nasty water. And so Jesus says to them, you say I am rich because I got all the water I want. You say I prosper. You are in fact, he says, very poor, very weak, very tepid, you don't really have anything of any particular value. You just think you do. We were talking in the Sunday school class about how this story, uh, uh, this, this particular letter reminds me of the story of the emperor's new clothes. You remember that story? The, the emperor was so vain uh, that his tailors convinced him that they were about to clothe him in a garment that was made with thread that was so thin it was invisible. And there would be no other royal personage in the world who had clothes as elegant as his because no one else would possess this, this invisibly thin clothing. No one, and you know, so they played to his vanity. He looked in the mirror at this non-existent cloak and, and he said, wow, you know. Well, eventually he goes around all over the community naked. And of course he's the emperor, so nobody wants to tell him how stupid he looks walking around naked, and they even go so far as, you know, to try to win his favor and to be revered by him as to praise him of how handsome he looks in his new clothes. Until one day he's at a public uh, sort of appearance and the people are cheering for the emperor, but one small child says, the emperor is naked. Y'all remember this story? It's a wonderful parable. The emperor has no clothes. And that's when it finally dawns on the emperor that he's been duped, really, by his own vanity. This is what Jesus is saying about Laodicea. He's saying, you Christians at Laodicea, you, you have taken the gift of eternal life, you have taken the gospel good news that I gave you, and you've put it in an envelope like an insurance policy and stuck it in a drawer. And you're going to pull it out when you think you need it most. Probably around the time that your uh, life is about to expire on earth. In other words, many Christians even today interpret as the Laodiceans did Jesus' gift of grace as a kind of get out of hell insurance. 
you know, like some sort of, of benefit that they've earned uh, or paid for that will prevent them from damnation. Or if we're honest, can we be honest? Most people aren't really worried about going to hell. I imagine some Christians don't even believe in hell. Most people don't worry that much about going to hell, but I'll tell you something they do worry about. They worry about what happens when they die. They worry about what happens when their loved ones die. And they want to be able to say, at that moment when they're gathered around the casket of their dead loved one, he's in a better place. They pull that insurance policy out of the drawer and they go, she's in a better place. I'll see her again. That, that's what most Christians do. And that is the problem at Laodicea. It's a name on a certificate. It's a policy. It is affirming Jesus with your mouth because, well, this is what it takes in order to feel the assurance that you're not going to go to hell or that you're going to heaven when you die. I know this is harsh, but this is, this is the essence of the letter here to Laodicea, is you guys think that you've got everything you need, and you think that the reason you have everything you need is because of my favor, but the most fundamental thing you don't understand about me, says Christ, is, is I don't feed flesh. I'm not in the business of feeding flesh. Therefore, if your flesh is satisfied, please don't give me credit for it, Jesus says. Instead, he says, look to me and you'll realize how really naked you are. You'll look to me and realize how filthy you really are. Look to me and you'll realize that what I have given you is a relationship with your creator that will span time and space as we know it and beyond. God really dislikes lukewarmness. The Bible is full of references to God's disdain for lukewarmness. Just listen to a few of these. In, uh, in uh, Hosea's book, he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For you, your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. And then in Jeremiah now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. And this one is actually an Old Testament quote in the New Testament book of Matthew. For the heart of his people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. You know that part where Jesus says, put my salve on your eyes so you can see? The only thing Laodicea has any uh, uh, notable uh, history for is some kind of a balm or ointment that they made there that was supposed to heal disorders of the eye, you know, like pink eye or something like that. And so Jesus, in a sort of joke, says, you guys think you got it made, maybe because you own the only store in town that sells that salve, I don't know, and I'm telling you that you can't even see with your own eyes how, how really wretched you are. Put my balm on your eyes and then you will see. 
I remember, again, I shared this in the Sunday school class, but I remember someone who was much wiser than me, an elder uh, pastor, telling me one time, he said, you know, the problem, Dan, is, is you keep thinking that you can make a blind person see something. You know, and, and it's true. I kept trying to make this person understand, you know, something that they were incapable of understanding, or to put it another way, they were blind, and I kept trying to hold something in front of their face and say, look, well, you can't make someone who's blind see. Jesus says, until these kinds of Christians wake up and open their eyes, they're just going to keep going through the motions. They're just going to keep practicing their faith instead of living their faith. Now, I've been tying this to the wilderness wandering that we're in and referencing the wilderness wandering of the people in uh, the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. So let me, let me do that for a minute. Um, you know, in a, in a less specific story, but in a broad overview, think back to the journey of the Israelites as they left Egypt. And the first thing that happened was they left behind a world that was familiar and comfortable, but not particularly pleasant for them because they were oppressed. And as soon as it got out, you know, they got out of there and it got in unpleasant, where they were going, they were thinking, well, gee, you know, all we're doing is trading miseries here. I'd rather go back to the misery I'm familiar with, right? So they were the go back to Egypt crowd. They figured it was better to be in Egypt where at least the misery was predictable instead of being in the wilderness where there was hard telling what misery was going to come next and how much worse it would be than the last one. So their faith was pretty weak. And then, of course, they got to the other side of the wilderness and, and the Lord said, now go explore the promised land, get ready to bring the people into the promised land. And the spies came back after a month of exploration and 10 out of the 12 spies told them, there's giants there, there's all kinds of problems, there's all kinds of reasons why we would be insane to try to go and live there. And two of the guys, Jake, uh, Jeremiah and uh, Joshua, excuse me, and Caleb, my mouth and my brain are out of sync, can you tell? So Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, oh no, there's giants and stuff, but then again, we have a giant God. I mean, our God, you know, defeated Pharaoh and split the Red Sea. Why wouldn't he be able to take on these people in this land that he wants us to occupy? And God is so angry with their faithlessness and they're, and they're so uh, deeply committed to, to their old ways that they will not give up their old ways. And, and God says to Moses, you know, I'd just soon kill them all and just start over with you. But God, Moses says, no, don't do that. So in, as, a, as a sort of middle ground decision, God says, fine, all the ones who were born in Egypt, except for Caleb and Joshua, are going to die in the wilderness. They're never going to set foot in the promised land. It'll be their children and their children's children who will go to the promised land, but not them. Now, here's the point I wanted to get to. What do you suppose those people did for the remaining 38 years or so, knowing that they were condemned to die in the wilderness and never see the promised land? Well, some of them were pretty rebellious, and they said, well, if that's the God we're following, forget him. And they ended up suffering severely for it, you know. One of those people was a guy named Dathan, and he and his clan literally got swallowed up by the earth because that was God's retribution for his faithlessness and his uh, not only faithlessness, but just flat-out rebellion. 
And then there were people who, you know, whimpered and whined one too many times and God let them suffer because of it. And so a number of people died in the wilderness being faithless. And we even talked about that in one of our messages, you know, that, that we were talking about Smyrna and we were talking about how the thing that you could say about Smyrna that you couldn't say about the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel is uh, they didn't whine. The Smyrnas didn't whine and complain. They didn't cry. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. They just said, okay, God is still God. It doesn't change anything that I happen to have a rough go of it right now. And I questioned at that point in the series how many Christians are going through 2020 whining and complaining. Well, thank you, Donna, for a lovely Facebook post about the pastor's lot right now. But I can tell you as a pastor, I've heard some mighty fine whining and complaining. <laughs> I'm not mad about it, but there's an awful lot of people out there whining and complaining about... Uh, things that none of us really have any control over, you know, and, and kind of beating you up for doing the best you can, and you're darn if you do and darn if you don't, right? And, and I'm okay with it, really am, but what my point is, is that the Bible makes it pretty clear, God doesn't like whiners, God doesn't like complainers, because those are demonstrations of faithlessness. You know, when you whine and complain, you're basically saying that you're not getting what you deserve. Right? And the God says, like in the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, look, you better watch out or I'll give you exactly what you deserve. You know? I mean, think about it. I'm glad I'm a New Testament God follower because in the Old Testament, I'm sure I would have gotten myself scorched a long time ago. <laughs> you know? As Dave Ramsey likes to say, you know, God, it, it doesn't hurt to remember from time to time that God can take you out and leave a grease spot where you used to be, right? This is still the same God. He's just, he's just a lot more merciful, even more merciful if that's even possible because of the redemption Jesus buys us. You know, God was more direct in the old days. And we are grateful that we have an intercessor, someone who takes our burden away. So the people who wandered in the wilderness were, a lot of them deserved to die in the wilderness as, as God had planned, but, but I always wondered, were there any, I hope so, were there any who said, boy, we really blew it? But they're looking at their little children and realizing that one day they will enter the promised land without us. And I wonder if any of those people said, you know, we blew it, but Lord, I'm going to spend the rest of my life repenting, and I'm going to do everything I can to teach my children to serve you better than I did. You know, parents over a certain age, you know the answer to this question as well as I do. Don't we really hope that our children will be better people than we were and have a better life than we had? Isn't that just the very nature of parenting? We hope that we have taught them things that will eventually let them be even better than, you know, I look at all of my children and I'm so proud of every one of my five children because they're better people at their respective age than I was at that age. And I'm all right with that. You know, I'm trying to stay healthy because it's taken me a lot longer to grow up than them. And I'm not sure I'm done yet, so I figure I've got to stay healthy because it could take a long time at the rate I've been going for the last 58 years, you know. But my kids, 
I'm just blown away by their progress. I'm so proud of them. I think that's what I'm hoping we had among some of those Israelites who knew they were condemned to die in the wilderness, that they would invest so heavily in the generation that follows, even as they repented of their sin against God. We get back to Laodicea, and what you're hearing is Jesus saying, I love you, that's why I'm rebuking you. It's, it's part of the reason that I'm correcting you is because I care about you. And what we need to hear in all of these seven letters is Jesus investing in the people called the church or the body of Christ, even though they are in some ways a big disappointment to him, he's still investing in them. Because as he says in today's letter, I am the amen. I'm the only one who can, just in my own being, fulfill God's will. That's, you know, when we say the word amen, that's what we mean. Let it be done. Let it be so. God, this is how it should be. So when we pray, we say amen. God's will be done. That's what amen. Jesus says, I am God's will done. You see? He starts with that and then gives one of the most scathing of the seven letters, if not the worst. And what he says to them is, I still love you. I just need for you to understand that you can't go through church life as though it's a social club and a, a gathering around uh, my name. What he wants people to be is committed to their relationship with him, not their relationship with a church that's been ordered in his name. Let it be so. See, that's the whole point of this letter, is that the people were ignorant of how faithless they were, how they took great joy in the things that they affirmed in each other. Now think about this for a minute, because this is very common in church. People in inevitably affirm what they like about each other and what they would like for others to admire about them. And so we have a whole sort of group of people gathered around a common idea or ideology, and we affirm each other on how well we live that. You know, like, I've never understood, and I'm, I'm digressing here a little bit, but I, I, you know, I was talking with my, my dear friend George over there. We were talking a little earlier, and he reminded me that I might hold clergy to a bit of an unfair standard, and I think you were wise to tell me that. But I'll tell you... Uh, I've never understood award shows for clergy. Yeah, I went to an evangelism conference years ago. You remember this one, Laura? We went to the evangelism conference. It was at the Opryland Hotel. It was lavish. It was extravagant. And they were giving out awards for evangelism. You know what evangelism is? Spreading the good news of Jesus Christ so other people can be saved by God's grace. And they were giving out awards. They were honoring people who were exceptionally good evangelists. And I, we left early. I said, this is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up to go to a conference on evangelism so I could watch a bunch of well-dressed, you know, well-attired people congratulating each other on how well they did church. Do you suppose that's what Laodicea is like? Every Sunday is a big 
Hey, man, you do church really well. Yeah, you too. <laughs> and we all agree about everything except what matters most. I'm naked. I'm wretched. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. My Lord is king. I'm not. He doesn't get a kick out of rewarding my flesh. He gets a kick out of my commitment to his precepts. And there is no greater precept than to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And he really gets a kick out of that, but he doesn't really care that much about whether my flesh is satisfied. So I'm not saying church has to be a bunch of people moping around feeling sorry for themselves. Well, we're far from it. We should be people filled with joy because what could be better news than knowing that despite the fact that you don't deserve it, you've been saved for an eternal existence in the very home of your creator. That ought to make you happy every day. And that ought to make you happy even if you wake up and the news is bad on your iPhone today. It should make you happy even if you go to bed and realize it got worse during the day. It should make you happy if there are twin hurricanes bearing down on the Gulf Coast like never before, right? It doesn't matter. This is good news anyway. Because that's the very nature of the word gospel, which is a word that means good news. It's universal good news. It's good news for everybody. No effort of your own will be required in order that you might obtain what you couldn't possibly hope for, which is the grace of God and eternal fellowship with God in God's own house. I mean, think about that. None of us knows what tomorrow brings. We, we may not all be able to be together again next week at this time because some of our number might have passed from this life to the next. And it could be me. But the one thing we can be sure of because of this universal good news is, is this is not where it ends. We are saved by God's grace, not because of anything we've done. We are welcome in God's home, whether spiritually in this temporal existence or physically in the eternal existence that transcends earth and space and time. And oh, by the way, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to connect what was once beyond earth and space and time with earth and space and time. This is what they mean in the Bible when they talk about the new Jerusalem. And so one day when the time is just right, the narrow way, will lead you to the light of his second coming. That, that's what we're looking forward to. Now, i got to wrap this up. Jesus calls this selfless devotion to him and those things that matter most to him the way, the narrow way. In the early church, they called it the way. They were people of the way, like with a capital W. And the narrow way is by its own nature, uncomfortable. Now, it was almost a year ago, it's a little short of a year yet, but, but almost a year ago, uh, several of us went to Israel together, and on a free day, some insane people let me lead them on a walking tour around Jerusalem and the city of David. They actually thought I knew what I was doing. Well, they're here, so I guess I did succeed in that regard. But I want to tell you about one part of that, because we were in the city of David, and we were exploring um, some of the most significant Bible sites that you could want to encounter. And, and we came to Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, I'd always wanted to see that, always want to walk through it. 
I had no idea. I mean, there's, there's no like, uh, you know, when you're walking through this part of this underground labyrinth, you're just sort of there and the sign says, if you want to do Hezekiah's tunnel, keep going this way. If you don't go that way, that's about it. And, and I, I said, I want to do it. And Emily Seitz was with me. A group of other people too. But, and Emily said, well, I'd like to do it too. It seems a little scary, but I'll do it if you do it. I said, all right. And then my brother-in-law, Derek Foreman, who's about eight inches taller than me, which makes an important part of the story here in a minute. Uh, he says, yeah, I'll do it. So I lead. Emily follows me, and then Derek follows her. So she's got two guardians watching over her, and we step down into water that comes up to our knees and start down through a cave that is about as wide as my shoulders. It's a tunnel, really. It's just a little wider than my shoulders and a little higher than the top of my head, and I'm not a tall fella. And uh, we start walking this cave. We have no idea how long this tunnel is. None of us have ever been in it before. And it's dark. I had to take off my shoes, of course, you know, because we're wading in water that's up to our knees the whole way. It's probably up to our waists today because they've had a lot of rain. But I had my iPhone down in my shoe with its little flashlight turned on, and I was carrying my shoes like a lantern, right, walking through this tunnel that's only about as wide as my shoulders and about as tall as my bald head. And we're walking along through this tunnel, and I have no idea where it ends. I have no idea how long it's going to take. Emily's put her faith in me, and I'm thinking I promised her parents I would bring her home intact, and I'm worrying about that responsibility, and Derek's back there going, don't, you know, because he keeps hitting his head. And, and I thought today, that's the narrow way. That's the narrow way. Emily was glad, she told me a couple of times she was glad I was wearing my hat because she was afraid that I would end up with a bloody scalp if I hadn't had my hat on, so she was looking out for me. But you know, we didn't know how long it was going to take. It took about 40 minutes, and it's dark, and all you can hear is the water running through your legs, and, and, and you're moving in the direction the water is flowing because it's a water tunnel that was built by uh, Hezekiah to... Um, uh, it was a water tunnel that was built to bring water in from outside the walls of Jerusalem inside the walls so that if they were under siege by an enemy, they still had access to fresh water. Brilliant piece of engineering for people who did it with picks and shovels. And uh, we're walking through this thing, and I keep thinking, well, you know, it's been like a half an hour. Surely we'll get to the end of this, you know. And you go around the bend, and it's just the view going forward is exactly like the view going backward. And there's a couple of places when it got taller because they would take advantage of natural fissures in the, in the bedrock. But for the most part, it was always just, those people were short back then. And every time I would round another bend, I would think, well, there's going to be that familiar light. I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of tunnels and caves and things in my lifetime. And, you know, kept thinking there'll be that little glow that'll tell me we're almost to the end. And, and then it, if I wasn't sure, I could just cover that light with my hand and it's just black. Now... What was really amazing is when we finally got to the end, it was like we just rounded a corner and boom, there was light, and we were there. It, it just, it wasn't like it just gradually got lighter, it just, and I thought, my gosh, today as I'm telling you that Jesus is asking us to go on this narrow way of salvation, it's like that tunnel. It's like Hezekiah's tunnel. We are walking on a path that is, not or that is not comfortable, and it is 
mysterious at times and unpredictable at times, and yet we take it in faith that we will emerge into the light one day. That's the narrow way of Christ. No wonder so many people choose a different way or try to redefine what he meant by that. And this is basically what we've run into in all these seven letters is variations of comfortable Christianity being refuted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the author of Christianity. And the discomfort that goes with living in absolute faith and devotion to him more than self, which he affirms. Is there more we could say about walking in the wilderness? Probably not. And so we'll let it go at this. We're in the wilderness right now. We've left behind something that was familiar but not particularly rewarding. And we are now uncertain about how long it will take before we enter into the promise. And some of us may not see that promise fulfilled. And yet we have a legacy to fulfill, a responsibility to teach the children and the upcoming generations, the people who aren't sitting in the, see all these empty seats, they represent people who aren't worshiping with us here, but they will be. And we have a legacy or a responsibility that we have to commit to for their sake, because God is unchanging and everlasting. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we're temporary in this temporal world but eternal because of God's grace. But we will all eventually end up cheering for the matters of God's will being completed on earth as they are in heaven. And I'd like to leave behind something of profound significance, which is faith in Christ and dedication to Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it upon our hearts. We owe you everything, more than we realize, and we admit that we're a little bit comfortable sometimes. Forgive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.